Welcome everyone uh, to uh, another Hot Politics Lab meeting. Um, I'm very excited to have Ashley Jardina as our guest uh, today. Ashley is an assistant professor at Duke University and uh, she recently published uh, a book, White Identity Politics, um, which, um, in which she uh, discusses uh, racial attitudes and, and, and conflict and uh, particularly the role of, of how group identity inf influences a range of different political behaviors in the United States. So yet again, we have an extremely uh, uh, topical uh, uh, speaker. Uh, and uh, so yeah, that's why I'm really excited to have you, Ashley. And um, as usual, uh, there will be a presentation of about 20 minutes after uh, you can uh, type your uh, questions into the Q&A box. Those are the two balloons uh, 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 down on your, on your screen. And uh, uh, during the Q&A, Bert uh, will read out your uh, questions. I see we have about 20 participants now from uh, a lot of different places in the world. So that's great to have. So a good morning and good evening to some of you. And uh, without uh, further ado, I wanna uh, give the floor to uh, Ashley. Thank you so much, and thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you. It's 9 a.m. here, and so this is a really nice way to start my morning. I, um, I'm going to share my screen here, and because of the short time period, I'm going to kind of give a cursory overview of my book, and um, I want us to have kind of a chance to talk about where things are today and, and maybe think about this in wake of the political um, election in the United States. And so I'm gonna kind of go through this in a way that's you know, a little bit more cursory than I normally would. But I wanna begin by taking us back in time a little bit to set the stage here. So in 2010, in the wake of the um, 2010 United, US Census, we started to see all of these projections emerging about the changing population of the United States. So we knew that whites were no longer gonna be a majority of the United States population by some time in the middle of the century. This wasn't exactly news, but like demographers had been projecting this for some period of time. But the extent to which this became sort of front and center in the media, became part of public discourse, really changed after 2010. Of course, other things happening in the United States at this time, uh, you've got in 2012 the historic election of Barack Obama, and this is really symbolic for the United States, right? The election of the first African American, but also, right, put differently, the election of the first non-white person in the United States to the highest elected office in the country. And then, of course, as we all know, in 2016, we saw the election of Donald Trump. This was, by all measures, Trump was a very unconventional presidential candidate. He openly disparaged racial and ethnic minorities. He was slow to distance himself from the endorsement of white nationalists and white supremacists. And you know, he took up a rather unconventional set of policy positions compared to the standard Republican platform in the US. And we can talk a little bit more about that. You know, and then in the wake of Trump, we, in, around Trump's election, we also saw the rise of a lot of right-wing white supremacist groups in the US who began to capture far more public attention than they had in the past. And by places that, that actually measure the rise and the activity of hate groups definitely noted um, that there was an increase in their activity uh, under the Obama era, but um, they were certainly reinvigorated by Trump's election. And if we look at just a general white public opinion during this time, we see that you know, some really interesting trends. So white Americans during this period start to report that discrimination against their group has become as big of a problem, if not bigger than discrimination against black people and other racial and ethnic minorities. And some whites even started advocating for a white history month in the United States to um, put this, this idea that we have a black history month in the United States where we celebrate the success and the achievements of African Americans. Many white Americans thought like black people should have a black, if black people have a Black History Month, then surely white Americans should have a White History Month. And if you go back during this period of time, during the Obama era, and you start to see what some really popular conservative pundits were saying, they were saying things like, white people are a new oppressed minority. They're moving to the back of the bus. Bill O'Reilly said that the white establishment is now the minority. It's not traditional America anymore. 
Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan says this in 2010, but let's be honest, Pat Buchanan had been saying this uh, to the American public for like really 20 years prior to this, that white America is an endangered species. And this kind of commentary wasn't limited to conservative right-wing pundits. A lot of major news sources in the United States were asking similar questions, framing things in similar ways, asking, is this the end of white America? Um, what will a U.S. minority, a white minority in the U.S. look like? Uh, are white people racially oppressed? And so on and so forth. And it might seem sort of surprising to you now, given what we know and given the political landscape in the United States over the past four or so years, but for a long time, the idea that we would be talking about white people in the US as a group that had these sort of set of shared interests to social scientists and political science in particular was really unusual. So the dominant paradigm in the social sciences was that white people didn't think about their race. White consciousness is not a politically consequential force. And the argument here is that it follows a sort of metaphor, just as fish don't see water, white people don't see their race because as the group that has the lion's share of social, political, and economic power in the U.S., they're not constantly reminded about their racial group. They sort of get to cast their, their identity as white people as um, in the image of the national identity. Being white is being American, and I think about being American perhaps, but I don't usually think about being white. That was the kind of argument. And so what that means is that when we've usually thought about the role that race plays for white people in politics, it's always been with respect to the attitudes that not that white people have about themselves and their in-group, but instead the attitudes that white people have toward racial outgroups, toward people of color in the United States. So part of what I've been doing in my work is kind of taking a step back and getting us out of this framework, this framework of thinking about prejudice. And instead, going into the world of social psychology and outside of just of the domain of race, but inside the domain of just thinking about intergroup conflict, social psychologists have long argued that humans just have this natural proclivity to sort the world into in-groups and out-groups. And when we do this, there's a whole set of psychological um, effects to, to this kind of sorting. And this is the kind of framework that I'm trying to put the race scholars and people who study racial attitudes back into to say, um, if we want to understand racial conflict, we want to understand how different groups see themselves. Let's go back to thinking about things like social identity theory and to thinking about intergroup conflict. But we have to understand that if we're going to apply this framework to thinking about the way racial groups in the United States interact with one another, we also have to keep in mind that in the US, racial groups are organized really hierarchically with white people at the top and other racial and ethnic groups somewhere um, on this ladder uh, and arguably with black Americans um, sort of at the very bottom of this racial hierarchy. Because we can't just recognize that people are sort of groups equally vying for power, but instead that white people are at the top. And part of why this matters is that when white people feel secure at the top of this hierarchy, this is when we don't really find a lot of effects for these in-group attitudes. White people don't have to think about being white when they aren't given a reason to. But when there are threats to this arrangement, when white people are worried about their position at the top of this hierarchy, I argue, that's when white Americans start to become more aware of their racial group and their racial identity. So to kind of give you a little bit of an overview again here, the common assumption for a long time in political science was that the extent to which racial attitudes matter among white people in the US, it was with respect to outgroup animus and to racial prejudice and that white in-group attitudes far less consequential. So what I'm doing in my work is I'm revising these assumptions. I'm saying white Americans actually do identify with their racial group. And what is more that this identity is actually independent of out-group prejudice. I'm gonna talk more about this, but the argument that I'm making is that it's not that in-group identity and out-group attitudes are wholly unrelated, but that they are in fact separate independent constructs. One of the things that I really clearly demonstrate empirically in my work is that there are a lot of white Americans who have this sense of racial solidarity with their group, one that helps maintain um, 
certainly a system of racism in the United States. But a lot of those Americans don't also simultaneously have strong, a strong sense of animosity toward people of color. Now, those in-group attitudes in many ways can get them to the same set of policy preferences that someone who we think of as overtly racist toward Black people, for example, might arrive at. Um, but they get there for different reasons. And so this is a really important part of the story here, because what it means ultimately, and, and I'll talk about this in the conclusion, is that you actually have sort of two independent sets of white people in the United States, for example, who support Donald Trump for different reasons. Some of those people support Donald Trump because they're worried about their in-group, and some of them support Donald Trump because they have these feelings of animosity toward racial and ethnic minorities. And of course, the argument that I'm ultimately making here is that white identity, just like racial prejudice, is politically consequential. The idea is that this threat, this status threat, um, can activate dominant group identities that we often think of as latent or um, invisible or inconsequential. And the other argument that I make is that a lot of empirical work that looked for the effect of white racial solidarity in the past, this is work by David Sears, Donald Kinder in particular, um, and part of why they were doing this is they, they saw white identity as kind of an alternative theory to their theory of racial resentment, which is a, you know, a theory about racial outgroup attitudes and their political consequences. And so they were trying to kind of demonstrate that, hey, white identity doesn't really matter. And I think one of the limitations of this work is that they, first of all, didn't acknowledge the possibility that white identity could matter if changes in the political environment happened. But they also didn't really acknowledge the fact that white identity isn't just about uh, a preference for, um, or, or a lack of support for policies that benefit racial and ethnic minorities, but that it's actually far more likely to relate, be related to policies that benefit white people. So they are often looking for this relationship between white identity, for example, and attitudes toward um, things like providing more spending for black people um, in the United States or more aid for black people in the US. So why does it matter now? Well, as you know, as I started talking about all of, there's sort of this confluence of things that's happening in the United States in the mid 2000s. We've had the, so we observe the effects of major changing demographics in the US. We've seen the population of the US has shifted. Part of this is due to this large wave of immigration that the US experienced in the late 1990s, moving into the 2000s. And then you've got all of the visible effects of this, the success of, of Barack Obama, the um, rise is sort of in the media and pop culture of um, different racial and ethnic minorities who are now becoming like highly visible in elected office, on TV, in all of these other places. And so, you know, suddenly I think a lot of white Americans were like, hey, uh, the, the image of the country as an image that reflects me and who I am is really shifting here and changing in a really big way. I make this distinction in my work between two types of racial solidarity. I'm going to kind of skip over this now, but I'm happy to talk about it a little bit more. But I talk about white identity. I also talk about this idea of consciousness. And the difference between the two is identity is just the psychological attachment. Consciousness is psychological attachment plus a set of really explicit beliefs about what your group should be doing. That it should be working collectively in politics to try to change policies um, that you think uh, don't benefit your group. Okay, so what are the consequences of this identity? Um, I argue that there are a range of them. One is that you have this desire to protect um, and, and support policies that benefit whites. And that means that a lot of white identifiers don't like immigration because it's changing the demographics of the country. There's another sort of surprising effect here, which is that they have this strong support for social security and Medicare. Now in the United States, racial animosity, racial outgroup attitudes are often associated with a um, with opposition to redistributive policies. So like welfare in the United States is really unpopular because white people see it as a policy that disproportionately benefits black Americans. But, um, and Nick Winter actually I, should be credited with developing this idea in this framework. He talks about this in his book, um, but social security and Medicare in the US have actually been framed uh, historically and deliberately as policies that uh, sort of are counter stereotypical to welfare, where welfare is for people who are out of work, um, who need assistance. Social security is a policy that people get as a reward for working over time. They pay, so you pay social security as part of your, um, 
your income. And then once you retire, you get that money back. And so um, my argument is that social security is actually should be associated with whiteness. It's sort of tied up in these beliefs and these positive stereotypes that we have about white people as like hardworking Americans relative to people of color in the United States who are seen as um, people who unintentionally or who intentionally are unemployed. Um, and then obviously, not surprisingly, we expect this to be associated with opposition to Obama and support for Donald Trump. So how do we measure this? Um, I'm gonna talk just, I'm gonna skip over the measure of consciousness. I'm happy to come back and talk about it, but I actually get at this with a very straightforward, simple question. How important is being white to your identity? And I asked this on nationally representative surveys in the United States, and I find that somewhere between, you know, um, 30 and 40% of white Americans say that being white is very, if not extremely important to their identity. I add a couple questions to get at consciousness. I'm gonna skip over this in the interest of time. Um, but what you can see here too is when I measure consciousness, there's some pretty uh, notable variation here as well. A lot of white Americans have this sense of consciousness. And my expectation is that both of these things are connected first to immigration attitudes, right? Immigration is viewed in the US as threatening to this Anglo-Protestant culture. It's contributed to these demographic trends. And that's exactly what I find. So what I have here is using um, American National Election Study data, the gold standard for public opinion data in the United States. They included this measure of white identity on the 2012 ANES survey. What they find here is that as levels of white identity increase, so does opposition to immigration. And this is controlling for a whole host of other things that we think might matter for immigration attitudes like political partisanship, employment status, personal economic evaluations, so on and so forth. And we find that um, white identity is strongly associated with opposition to immigration. I have just one question here, but one of the things that I do in my work is I look at basically every possible immigration attitude you might have, and it, it turns out that white identity is overwhelmingly connected with just immigration attitudes on the whole. So it's not just should we decrease immigration, but things like do you believe that immigrants take jobs away from American citizens? People with higher levels of white identity are much more likely to believe that immigrants take jobs away from American citizens than people with lower levels of white identity, which is also indicative of the fact that um, this argument that immigration attitudes in the United States are primarily driven by economic anxiety, um, I think Many people have debunked this, but my work is certainly consistent with this argument that economic anxiety really isn't the driving factor of immigration attitudes in the US. You know, just sort of give you a sense like of the, you know, sort of different things I've asked about. It's uh, build a wall along the US border, higher levels of white identity strongly associated with that. Belief that immigrants um, commit higher rates of crime, white identity strongly associated with that. So what about things like Social Security and Medicare? Again, I find very similar effects in the same direction. White Americans with higher levels of white identity, far more supportive of Social Security. Same thing with Medicare, far more supportive of Medicare. Again, each of these things I'm showing you here, the trend even after controlling for a host of other things that we think might be associated with these policies. So that gets us to Barack Obama. Same thing, you know, the, the narrative, right, among political scientists, especially in the wake of the Obama election, we now have like this sort of stack of research that shows that, um, that one of the strongest predictors of opposition to Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 was uh, animosity toward black people. And that certainly remains true. But it turns out that even after you control for things like racial resentment, racial prejudice, anti-black stereotypes, that white identity was a really strong predictor of opposition to Barack Obama. So, you know, whites who had higher levels of white identity were far less likely to vote for Obama in 2012, far more likely um, to vote for Romney. But the other thing is that part of why they were more likely to vote for Obama, what I have here, is that um, a lot of white Americans thought that Barack Obama was likely to favor black people over white people. So you can see there's this relationship between levels of white identity and this belief that um, Barack Obama was more likely to do things that benefited black people and less likely to do things that benefited white people. Okay, so that gets us to 2016. One of the things that I like to point out, right, is, you know, so I've talked a lot about how white identity is really tied up in beliefs about changing demographics, anxiety about changing demographics. So this image right here, this is the this is an image of Donald Trump's campaign website when he began his presidential campaign in 2015. 
And um, if you went to the website and you can do this, you can use the internet way back machine to go to his campaign website and see it as it existed in August of 2015. If you clicked on the positions link at the top of the website, the only position that he had was immigration reform. So he began his campaign talking almost wholly and exclusively about immigration reform, right? So totally appealing to the subset of whites who were really concerned about immigration in the United States. He also did some really interesting things. He departed ways with the traditional Republican Party platform in the United States of being anti-government, being anti-social welfare policy. Um, and he didn't come out obviously and say, I support welfare. He would never have done that. But he did say, I'm not going to make cuts to Social Security. I'm not going to make cuts to Medicare. I think the Medicaid thing in here, to be perfectly honest, is um, because he doesn't know what Medicaid is. Um, but you know, he start, he takes uh, credit for and su and suggests like I'm going to protect these programs, right? And in some ways, it's like following the sort of perfect playbook of someone appealing to this subset of white Americans who want policies that are for their group, who don't want immigration. And if we look at the effects of white identity on Trump support, this is the um, probability of selecting Donald Trump in the primaries, the presidential primaries back in January of 2016 over every other Republican presidential candidate. So I'm not even talking here about vote choice ultimately in 2016. I'm just saying, looking at is white identity a just predictive of support for Republican candidates or was Trump unique? And what we see quite clearly is Trump was in fact unique. People high on this identity liked Trump over any of the other front running Republican presidential candidates early in the race. And to kind of illustrate this a different way, what I have here in this chart are, uh, is the relationship between white identity and affective evaluations of the different political candidates in 2016. So these are feel the um, dependent variable here are these feeling thermometer evaluations where you rate uh, how warm or cold you feel toward different candidates. And what you can see is that white identity wasn't predictive of attitudes toward any of the other presidential candidates, Democrat or Republican, but it was strongly tied to more positive feelings toward Donald Trump. So just to end here, what I'm suggesting is that there are these two forces in American politics. Um, one is this sense of in-group attitudes. And of course, I'm not suggesting that all of this work that's been done on white racial prejudice is irrelevant, but that in fact, what we've done is we've overlooked the fact that there's this, this confluence of things, these two forces working independently and in tandem to get a lot of white people to support Donald Trump, for example. And you know, this political environment can influence um, these different levels of white identity. We can talk a little bit about that. Um, but you know, a lot of the, the question I sort of get is like, well, how do we get ourselves out of this? And I think that to some extent, we, we can talk about this. There, you know, there's some norms that push back against this. But on the other hand, um, even I was a little bit surprised by the election results uh, that you know came in last week. Right, you've got just you know, despite the cries of the media of Trump's racism, um, this those rise in conversations about white identity politics being problematic in the U.S. What we're really seeing is that you know, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the vast majority of white people in the United States um, voted for Donald Trump. So you've got you know, almost depending on what exit polls you read, almost 60% of white Americans chose Trump in the 2020 election. And so there's a lot to suggest that both white identity and white prejudice remain really powerful forces um, and probably will remain very powerful forces in American politics. So I'll end there and I'm looking forward to taking your questions. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Thank you. Uh, great presentation. And it's, uh, sorry, Bert, I'm taking your... Uh... That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So enthusiastic. You can ask the first question. I give the floor to Gijs <laughs> uh, Yeah, I had a question about, um, you know, one of the things that really surprised me last week to hear is that, that Joe Biden is, the, is only the second Catholic president in the history. And yeah. so my question is about um, uh, uh, how coherent is white identity and how strongly are older uh, let's say, within white identities like Catholicism, Irish, Italian, how important are these in, in, the, in this concept? Yeah, I really, I love this question because I think it's really interesting to think about the, the transition in the United States um, that happened, you know, over the course of the 20th century in terms of the significance of white ethnic identities. And, you know, so 
basically post 1900 in the US moving into really the 1980s, these ethnic identities that a lot of American white Americans had their attachment to being Italian, their attachment to being Irish, these were both like really important for how people saw themselves, but in some ways they, it was really important to how they voted. And um, a lot of sociologists have done some really great work looking at the importance of this over time. So like Mary Waters, Richard Alba have had done amazing work researching the significance of these white ethnic identities. And what they conclude is that really by the late 1990s, due to generational displacement and due to assimilation, these identities just became mostly irrelevant, um, especially to politics. So the extent that they matter, they kind of matter at Christmas time when you're deciding like, what family recipe am I going to make? But that, you know, that idea of like an Irish vote and the Italian vote, while it still might matter a little bit locally in some ethnic enclaves in the United States, really has lost a lot of its significance. And I think that's part of why this racial identity, in fact, does matter. A lot of people who might otherwise sort of put their group identity into this pot of, of an ethnic identity, um, what that's transformed into is this kind of like white identity you could see as sort of being this like very Eurocentric identity. This, you know, this sort of idea, like, I mean, and it gets tied up with these ideas about America being a melting pot. Well, it's a, what, a melting pot of what? It's most people, when they think about that, it's a melting pot of all those European immigrants now, like Irish, Italian, Hungarian, we're all basically the same. But, you know, this white identity, it certainly isn't tied to, like, whiteness, um, as people might think about it, like, from immigrants from, like, South and Central America, for example. Um, and so there, the, the short answer to your question is that those ethnic identities have really declined in their significance. And in turn, what we're seeing is this kind of pan-white, pan-European identity replacing those attitudes. Great. Uh, there are a couple of questions uh, in the uh, chat. Ashley, as I said, I'll read them out and then, uh, and then uh, you can uh, comment. The first is from uh, Nicholas Lowell. Um how generalizable is the idea that status threat can activate white group identities? I very recently read a paper that claims that threats towards the in-group and the out-group mobilize authoritarians rather than people in general. So might it just be that white authoritarians or white people who, sit, who have a social dominance orientation who are affected by social threat? Yeah, so... It, you're right. It's it, So it's not super generalizable in the sense that it's not the case that all white Americans have a white identity. It's a sizable percentage of them, 30 to 40 percent. But um, to Nicholas, to your question, uh, the strongest predictor of whether you adopt, one of the strongest predictors of whether you adopt a white identity based on the work that I've done is how high are you in social dominance orientation. So the way I see it is sort of social dominance orientation is this like precursor, right? If we, you know, we can... One of the, I think there's a lot of debate over what, like, what do we think of social dominance orientation is. I, I'm going to go with Sidanius, even though he's a little inconsistent about this, and say we're going to call this a, a personality predisposition. There is some inconsistency in actually how he defines this. But if you think about it as a personality predisposition, it's pretty downstream or upstream, and then you you get or down, yeah, no downstream, and then you get to sort of this these group identities, which are I think much more closely tied to politics than social dominance orientation. Um, but I actually, I think this is a place where there's also room to do more work because the, the stuff that I've done with these personality traits has only been on convenient samples. Um, it's hard to get national, it's very expensive to get nationally representative public opinion data. And so they haven't asked the SDO scale on the American National Election Study in a while. And it would be great to sort of understand this more, but um, you know, nevertheless, it's clear that these personality traits are also pretty widely distributed across the American population. So um, to say it's not generalizable to all white people certainly isn't to suggest that it's not nevertheless pretty consequential. There's a sizable enough percentage of them that have this orientation that then adopt this identity that clearly it has pretty significant effects on our political system. Great. I was just thinking that maybe like uh, Chris Sibley and Danny Osborne in uh, in New Zealand might have some. It's like not 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 American data, but they they have all sorts of individual differences, and they might have asked about. I'm actually pretty sure they've asked about New Zealand sort of identity. So that might, if you ever want to sort of re study another co context, that might be persons to reach out to. Yeah, that's really helpful actually, because one of the things I am doing is I'm extending this work to Canada. Um, so we put the white identity questions on the Canadian National Election Study, but that certainly also begs like just 
kind of thinking about this in other Western countries as well. So that's really helpful. Thanks, Bert. Yeah. Uh, there's a question from uh, Robin uh, Totschel. Uh, thank you for your insights. Uh, do you know to what extent negative outgroup sentiments, in other words, prejudice, are also characteristics for other racial identity groups? There, so there, what extent are so there the, other? Yeah, so do you yeah. know to what extent negative outgroup sentiments are also are characteristics for other racial identity groups? So I guess how we should understand the question is, is this tied to white specific or could there also be sort of would this mechanism work similarly for other groups, right? Like African American. So I think that there one of there are a couple of things to think about here. One is um, so to keep in mind that argument that I'm making is that in group attitudes and out group pre prejudice for white people are these distinct contracts. They're not that related to each other. So the correlation between them is like. Uh, actually, like if you use racial resentment or you use these stereotype measures, it's only around 0.2 or 0.3. Um, but so like what happens if we then think about the, both these sets of attitudes among other racial and ethnic groups in the United States? So we know that African-Americans have high levels of in-group identity, um, but that identity comes not from status threat by way of them being a dominant group. It comes from them being a subordinated group that wants to achieve a higher level of status. And so there's sort of different qualities to it. There's sort of different underlying motivation. Um, and you know, sort of different sets of preferences. Uh, in terms of like racial animosity among those groups, we don't actually spend a lot of time studying racial prejudice among racial and ethnic minorities because um, we often don't think of it as like being determinate or consequential. Um, but there's some good work that's looked at, for example, um, Jim Gibson has some stuff where he's looked at whether higher levels of in-group identity among uh, black people in, Afri in South Africa lead to higher levels of uh, animosity toward white people in South Africa. And he finds that that's not actually the case. And so it doesn't tend, I don't find that it's much of a reciprocal relationship in the United States and taken outside the US to other contexts and even looking at sort of other groups within, there's some, there's some stuff on this like among college students in the US, don't tend to find that strong in-group identities um, don't often lead to strong out-group animosity among any groups, actually. Okay, next question is from uh, Ursula Dexaker. Uh, thanks a lot for a great talk and I look forward to reading your book. Uh, Ursula has three questions. I'm for now picking one and then we might return to some of the other questions because there are also a couple of other people who ask questions. So I, I can pick um, um, the first is um, how does attachment to white identity vary geographically in the, in the US? Is it higher or lower in places where people should feel more or less threatened because of, for instance, immigration? Yeah. So I think that the, the, this is a question where it's still a little bit to be determined, but let me tell you a couple of things that I know. So one is I actually had a different expectation at first, which is that given the legacy of racism and um, really of like of white supremacy in the American South, that Southerners would have higher levels of white identity. Um, and then I also had a similar expectation, like would you see it and would this identity be higher in places where there's been a greater change in levels of immigration? And um, both of these questions are difficult to really answer well empirically because of limitations with data. So, you know, I have these nationally representative data sets, but they rely on this cluster sampling method where they draw data from like the most populous areas of the United States, which means that they get a lot of people in metro areas and not enough geographic dispersion that you can actually um, carefully test this hypothesis, but to the extent that I can, um, I don't find that Southerners are that much more, uh, that they that they have a stronger level of identity. Actually, there's a tiny slight correlation that's kind of easy to make disappear. I don't find that levels of white identity are higher in places where there's been a big shift in immigration, but I do find some evidence that people in those places are more likely to apply that identity to their political attitudes. So this is a, a difference between levels versus the application of this identity to politics. So if I, another way of putting this very like sort of uh, in the terms of like empirical social science, if I look at the interaction between the change in immigration and white identity, I find that higher, that the effect on political preferences is stronger um, in places where you've seen a bigger change in immigration. 
Yes, thanks. This is uh, that's that's super interesting. Uh, I'll probably return to some of Ursula's other questions, uh, but first uh, cover a couple of other questions. The, it's a question from Juliet. Um, could you elaborate a bit more on how exactly you've measured white identity? Besides the question how important being white is to your identity, what are other things you included in your measures of white identity? Yeah, so oftentimes that individual, that single measure is the one that's most available on surveys. So a lot of these questions were ones that I crafted and then I had placed on the American National Election Study, but they, you know, the space is very limited. Um, and I should say that I, I spend a lot of time um, defending this single item measure because a lot of people are like, oh, it's a single item measure. And then especially if you're steeped in psychology, you're like, you need a 15 item measure to do this well. But it turns out that the single item measure really holds up. Um, there, I've done a lot of validity tests to, to, and you know, even when I put it in a lot of models where I like control for a really um, well-measured uh, like racial resentment, for example, it, it hangs in there. But nevertheless, I do have uh, a longer measure that I've validated where I ask people, things like um, how uh, proud are you of your racial group? And I asked them things like, um, how much do you feel like you and other white people have in common? Um, how, uh, how strongly do you identify with other white people? And then I also have this separate measure of consciousness, which I talked about, which includes all of these measures of identity coupled with things like, um, do you believe that employers are, uh, that a lot of white people aren't getting jobs in the United States because employers are hiring um, racial and ethnic minorities instead? And then also, how important do you think it is that white people should work together to change laws that they see as unfair to other white people? So those are these, these are the different measures that I have. Cool. Um, next question is from Matthijs Rodan. Thanks, Ashley. Very interesting presentation. I was wondering uh, if you could you tell us more about those who score high on your white identity measure, but are not negative about immigration, positive about Trump? What kind of group is this group that strongly focuses on their own racial group, but does not combine it with racial prejudice towards out groups? Yeah, so this is a really great way to clarify my point. There, there aren't... There are a lot of people who are high on white identity who aren't high on racial prejudice, but nevertheless support Donald Trump and are opposed to immigration. So let me talk about those people. And then I'm going to talk about sort of the, the this other set of people that you're actually not asking about, but that are that are in fact relevant to your question. So the reason that this is true, right, being having the sense of racial animosity or racial prejudice, like for a, you know, a long time, and I'd say even to still today, there are lots of norm violations, the, the, the scene is a norm violation, like it's seen as bad, actually, despite, <laughs> despite the political climate in the United States, it's usually seen as bad to have these, the set of prejudice um, toward people of color. But I think a lot of white Americans who don't dislike racial and ethnic minorities nevertheless sit there and they say, hey, I'm worried about my group. I'm, you know, worried about um, what the United States is going to look like uh, when white people are no longer a majority. And, you know, a lot of these same people stay there and say, like, I'm not, I don't dislike people of color, but nevertheless, I realize that I get a lot of benefits and there's a lot of privilege that I am, that I'm imbued with by way of my racial group. And so a lot of those people say, um, for example, if I don't, I don't want higher levels of immigration, not because they don't like Latinos. I don't want higher levels of immigration because I don't like what it's doing to the culture in the United States. I don't like that it's changing the image of the United States as one that I know and that one that I appreciate. And so I think that's part of the danger of this is that you have two sets of people who are arriving at in many ways, some of the same exact policy preferences, but for different reasons, for different psychological reasons. And the other thing too is that this makes white identity in some ways like a far more threatening and potent force in American politics because it doesn't have all of this sort of, um, these concerns about norm violations around it. A lot of white people think, I can't say bad things about people of color. I shouldn't think bad things about people of color. But we don't have those their same beliefs about white identity. A lot of white people instead say like, well, black and brown people get to organize around their race. Like surely as a white person, I should be able to do that too. Now, of course, believing that also means that you have to um, basically deny all like racial and ethnic inequality in the United States. But a lot of people do. They don't see prejudice or discrimination as a problem. And so they therefore think like, 
I should have a, you know, I get, to, I should have a white organization if black people get to have a black organization. And so I think that that makes it a little bit more um, worrisome and troubling. But just to really quickly speak to a sort of different set of white identifiers, there are people who, it's a small percentage of the, the population, but there are these sort of like very progressive, um, often very educated white people who say, I recognize that my identity as a white person is important because I um, know that white people are privileged and that the system disadvantages people of color. And um, they sort of take this very like socially progressive, uh, kind of like woke sort of um, approach to answering this question. Um, the problem is that like there aren't a lot of people who actually feel that way. And they're, you actually find them across the whole range of the white identity scale. So some people say, who have these beliefs say, my identity is important to me. And others of them say, I know what you're up to with this question. My, my white identity is not at all important to me. Um, so the measure's a little bit noisy, but when you control for things like education, it tends to kind of tighten up the effects of the scale. Alrighty, um, we have a question from anonymous attendee. Thank you for the interesting presentation. What ad additional identities do you think increase the salience of white identity uh, and decrease its importance? For example, are cisgender white men more likely to identify with a white identity than those who are non-binary or gender non-conforming folks? Well, I don't know about um, non-binary or gender non-conforming folks. That's a really interesting question. Uh, unfortunately, there often aren't enough of those people on public opinion surveys to really draw many conclusions about them. But what you might find surprising uh, is that it's actually not, uh, so if you look at the relationship between gender and uh, a propensity to identify as white, it's actually white women who are more likely to adopt a white identity. And you might think, well, why is that? Um, but my, my hunch, and I think this is, uh, there's a lot of evidence that I'm on the right track here in thinking about this, is that uh, you know, in the United States, if you are given a preference between a racial identity and a gender identity and you're a woman, like you know, social identity theory would tell us you're gonna adopt the higher status identity. So for, for white women, um, like there's, I think, a, a preference for picking your racial identity um, because the gender identity is a lower status identity. And there are lots of things to indicate that, that this is true, right? So like white women, um, not only more likely to vote for Trump, uh, but in 2020 than 2016, but you see this big education gap between white women. So white women without a college degree, more likely to identify as white, also more likely to support Trump the other thing that I've seen is there's a, a, a decline in levels of white identity in the U.S. following the 2016 election, I think in part because of the association between Trump and uh, white identity. A lot of people started to see it as, as slightly problematic, as slightly distasteful. You did start to see kind of these norms building around what it means to identify as white. Um, so uh, there's this decline. And I, I looked to see, you know, like what things predict decline. And actually, it turns out that um, the one group that really held in there that didn't uh, decrease in levels of white identity was white women. And I think part of this is like in the 2016 election, you know, for white women, um, the, the white woman candidate lost, right? And so there's this, I think, again, thinking about status here, um, white women are more likely to hang on to this identity. So the stereotype, of course, is that it's the white working class man who identifies as white, but it's actually not true. If anything, it's the white woman without a college degree who is kind of, uh, you know, and I should say too, these effects are like, the, the distinction here is not enormous. They're, you know, like white identity is well distributed across the whole range of demographics in the United States. But if there is some relationship that's significant, it's definitely gender. That's super interesting. Uh, I'm returning to uh, some of Ursula Dexaker's questions. Um, uh, one, her second question was, um, how do you think partisan identities interact with racial identities? Uh, and could this be a plausible, could, uh, is it a possible explanation for why some studies find stronger motivated reasoning among Republicans? Yeah, so one thing that continues to be, I think, surprising to me is the extent to which a lot of white Democrats have this, this white identity that works um, in the same way it does for white Republicans. And I think that part of the reason is that 
the parties haven't really sent or hadn't sent, you know, in 2012 and even into 2016, like you hadn't had this like long period of parties sending signals about which party is the party of white identity. You had plenty of time for the parties to send signals about which parties like don't, you know, which parties support people of color and which parties don't. But um, I think that what we're going to see is that more white identifiers are going to move into the Republican camp, but that kind of sorting hasn't completely happened yet. So there, there's some indication by, like, I think Efren Perez has a paper that he's been working on where he finds that actually the effect of white identity is stronger among Democrats than Republicans with respect to some policies. I don't find that effect consistently in my work. Uh, but the sort of very straightforward answer to your question is that right now, the effect of white identity on political attitudes is pretty similar among both Republicans and Democrats. But it's clear that Republican elites and the Republican Party is making a much stronger effort to try to appeal to the people in the American population who have this racial identity. And that probably is going to have some interesting downstream effects. Thanks. Um, also, another question from uh, Robin uh, Tochel. Um, do you think that identity politics is always aimed at establishing reinforcing group differences? My impression is that, for instance, black identity politics try to aim for the opposite, the deconstruction of group differences, or at least their hierarchical dimension. I don't think that the history of identity politics in the United States for black people is about the deconstruction of group differences, but certainly the deconstruction of, of a hierarchy. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you go back even and look at some of the rhetoric during the 1960s in the US around the civil rights movement, you had um, people like Martin Luther King and, and certainly Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X's whole um, approach was to sort of not just cultivate the sense of identity, but, you know, this whole, this create this whole sense of black nationalism. Um, but Martin Luther King also very clearly spelled out the need for this development of a group identity and a group consciousness. And I think, you know, this, this is motivated by a couple things for um, subordinated groups. It's one, um, both a way to um, sort of transform a subjugated group identity to one that's an empowering group identity, right? To like the cultivation of this identity is um, you are socialized in a society that tells you that it's bad to be black. Um, so let's kind of like appropriate that and say, no, you should be proud to be black um, instead. And that then has this other important effect, which is that the development of these group identities is meant to be politically mobilizing so that people can work to fight to achieve greater levels of equality. And so, you know, when people complain about identity politics in the United States, as they often do, um, my thought about this is always that identity politics um, bef outside the bounds of white, white identity politics has always been in the service of trying to achieve greater political empowerment and greater racial uh, equality, or not just racial equality, but equality for marginalized and subordinated groups. And so um, it's, it's a combination of the things that you, that you mentioned, both uh, trying to exacerbate group differences for this empowering effect, but, but the empowering effect is meant to deconstruct hierarchies. Yes, thanks. Uh, I, I take the freedom to also ask you a question for full disclosure. I was in the APSA committee that awarded you the, the best book award in uh, political psychology. So I did read the book and one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, uh, and it's fully deserved and, and I also still want to personally congratulate you Thank by you. this way, but you have in the, in the end of the book, you have a little section on, on what white identity politics might mean in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and you speculate a little bit about, about Western Europe as well. And, and um, so could you help me Clarify, but, but what your thoughts are where white identity would fit in? Because is it sort of the predecessor of nationalism or are it components that, that can consist next to each other? Or it, so, so we have some thoughts on if are you testing this as well? And just curious to hear some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm also curious to hear all of your thoughts on this because in many ways you'll have so much more insight than I do into this, but so my understanding is that to the extent that like identity politics matters in Western Europe, and I think that it works very similarly in Canada. Um, and let me say or say, step back and say that, you know, so one of the big differences between 
Europe and Canada and the United States is that uh, in the US, um, we constantly talk about race and we constantly talk about our objective group identity. So anytime you have to, like you go to the doctor's office, you apply for anything, like whether that's to go to college or a loan or whatever, you check a box to say what race you are, right? And there, you know, like in Canada, right? Like I gave this talk in Canada, it took me a long time to understand a question that somebody in the audience asked. They were, they were like, well, how do you know like these people are white? Like, how do they know that they're white? And I was like, wait, what do you mean? I don't understand. Like, and so then I, you know, it occurred to me that like in the US, we like we all walk around every day aware of what our objective racial group is. It doesn't mean that it's always important to us or that it like affects how we see the world or we see, you know, in a way that's obvious to us or that it affects our politics, but we all are very practiced at knowing which box to check. And so um, I think that, you know, in Canada and Western Europe, um, the sort of push away from that, and in some ways, the fact that in some places it, it's not permitted to even ask that question, um, coupled with the fact that like, these are, you, you know, Canada to some extent, but like Western Europe, you don't see yourselves as like a nation of immigrants, right? You, so the prominent identity is this national identity. But behind that, right, like what does it mean to be like British, right? What does it mean to be French? Well, the, what it means to be is very much the image of a white person, right? And so I think that... Um, the U.S. has had to reconcile with race and citizenship and national identity for basically the entirety of its history. And so for us, national identity has always been a story and a wrestling with like what race gets to be defined as American. But um, for parts of, you know, Western Europe, the this influx of immigration that has sort of led to questions about national identity that are tied up in race is, is much more recent. And so it's you, like, I think that that means that sort of this question between what is a racial identity and what is a national identity um, is, it hasn't been kind of rehashed and rehearsed for, you know, like centuries at this point. Um, and, and so I think Right now, the language of identity is very much one that's tied up in nationalism. But I would argue that, like, when you start to peel back the layers, even though it's, you're not talking about identity in terms of racial terms, that it's still nevertheless one that is very racialized. Uh, but the, the question for me is then what happens if you actually ask these white identity questions? in Western Europe, and I don't know the answer. Like, I suspect that probably more people than we might realize are going to say that their racial identity is important to them, but I bet a lot of those people who might say that are also gonna say like, no, I don't, I'm, it's not white that's being important to me, it's British that's being important to me. But then if you, you know, try to poke at this a little bit more, I would say that like, well, you think that being British also means being white, right? But if, but I'd love to know what you all think about this too. You think, guys? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, well, let me throw guys in front of the bus, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I, but don't we, I, I do have an answer. Well, maybe. Go ahead. But yeah. I mean, if, I mean, there are also very different ways to, to, to conceptualize national identities, and there's certainly more racial ways to do this. And, 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 so, so you have something called like things called racial nationalism versus civic nationalism, right? So the civic nationalism would be much more sort of a norm-based um, uh, type of nationalism, which, for example, which you know may have been much more prominent in in in, in parts of Europe when 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 they had sort of these super large empires where they were actually trying to integrate mostly other whites, not so much. Uh, uh, or or elites from say India or something, but uh, yeah, that would be my. So yeah. I, yeah, there's sort of different options here, routes to take in order to mobilize potential in and out groups, and, and that that would but, be my take. But that's interesting, Mike. One of the things I'm wondering is so you know in the U.S. the idea of civic nationalism is also really tied up in race, in part because the our civic nationalism is so associated with these beliefs about individualism and the Protestant work ethic. And um, one of the ways that that the sort of in the history of the United States we have marginalized Black people in particular is by is by constantly 
casting them as people who do not subscribe to those particular beliefs. And so I wonder if that's also true in Europe or if that is becoming true, the sort of like that, that you can actually divorce conversations of civic nationalism from the stereotypes um, that are being attributed to you know, immigrants and to non-white people coming into these countries. And maybe, maybe to add, I also, maybe to add to what Gijs said, I, I think that there are politicians in, in, especially on the right hand side of the spectrum that, that, that did pay attention to what happened in the US and they are trying to, to I think also facilitate and, and, and strengthen this sort of white identity that you described. And there, and this doesn't appeal to a lot of the mass, but I think there's some, it would be interesting if this is activating a certain group of people who are with white identifiers or makes it more salient because i think that's what is happening this sort of immigrants taking over the country and in uh, that there's that there's some of these similar discussions in the netherlands or in other countries like whether or not white people will be remain a majority which is obviously a <laughs> objectively a different context but but there is this sort of activation from the top down that is that is happening yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So really related to that when I, so I started this work a long time ago. Like I started doing this work in graduate school long before uh, Donald Trump was, you know, I mean, like that anyone thought he was going to be a political candidate. So like I was looking at this stuff like, gosh, in like 2007. And one of the things that I kept coming across in my work was, um, the, the fact that so many of the conversations that I expected to people in the US to be having about like immigration and demographic change and whiteness, when I would like Google stuff to try to find like conversations in the media and, you know, like in various places on the web, I would actually constantly come across people in, in Western Europe and groups in Western Europe concerned about US demographic change. So it's like a lot of the earliest explicit conversations about this were happening among like right wing groups in Europe who were focused on the United States and the implications of what that meant for sort of whiteness generally. And so this is another reason also that to think that like this, it's not just that the psychological um, phenomenon that we're talking about are universalistic in some ways, but just how connected the, these themes are across different countries and how I think that it's really important um, for people, other people too, like I, I, I'm not, like I'm not the best person to do to this, but like other people who sort of know this stuff to start thinking about what this means in Europe and, and to do it in this comparative context. Yeah. I think we should round up, right, Bert? Or, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, particularly Robin, uh, um, he, he had another question, but uh, we're, get, we're getting out of time. Um, I want to thank uh, Ashley for a great talk, uh, super informative. Uh, I think we all learned a lot. Um, and uh, uh, I want to thank you by um, giving you the Hot Politics Lab coffee mug. I actually don't have one here. Um, Sorry, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, um, uh, it's in my office. <laughs> so um, uh, uh, hopefully, once we're all uh, we have we've all been vaccinated by Pfizer, we uh, we can we can uh, you know go to a conference, and I will bring a whole suitcase of coffee mugs <laughs> to uh, to about 30 different people now who have given talks since March. So <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. That's so nice. It's so, I really appreciate you all having me. I'm very excited about this coffee mug because I started a collection of them in my office. Oh, okay. And so I'm like so happy that I can. <laughs> it's, it's very nice. But you don't you actually drink coffee, do you? Or Oh, no, I do. I have I've okay. got my coffee right here, actually. Yeah, okay, so. okay. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I'm excited to have this hot politics one. That's awesome. But you all have been so fun to talk with and this has been really thoughtful and informative and uh, you've given me some great ideas too for thinking about some comparative work. So I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Let me uh, end with uh, briefly announcing uh, our upcoming talks. Uh, next week, we have Ursula Hess, professor at Humboldt University Berlin, to give a talk about facial mimicry in social context. And um, I must say, Ursula Hess, I'm really excited to have her because she's really the world expert in, in psychology in terms of facial mimicry. Um, so I think it's going to be 
uh, uh, really exciting. Then uh, that's on November 20. Then on November 27, we have Graduate Friday again uh, with uh, Tobias Rohrbach and Lala uh, Muradova. And uh, then uh, we're going into December, 4th of December, uh, Marike van der Velde will give a talk. And uh, the week after that, Patrick Stewart will give a talk uh, about um, uh, 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 facing Farage using the Componential Processing Model of Emotion to understand UK and US citizen appraisal of immigration arguments. So uh, lots of interesting talks to, uh, uh, um, uh, to look out for. Uh, also, you know, uh, please uh, forward uh, the programs to your colleagues and friends. Uh, also, uh, you can always listen to our talks afterwards via Spotify or YouTube. Uh, we've seen uh, quite a recent uh, increase in, in popularity of our Spotify channel. So uh, uh, please uh, spread the gospel and uh, thank you uh, for uh, being here today and I hope to see you soon.